0: Hello and welcome back to Unprecedential, AEI's podcast on American Constitutionalism. This is Adam White, and I'm joined today by my two colleagues, Corey Shockey and Ryan Streeter. Corey is AEI's Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies, Ryan is AEI's Director of Domestic Policy Studies, but more relevant for today's conversation is the jobs that they had in the past in government service. Corey served on the National Security Council in the White House as Director for Defense Strategy and Requirements from 2002 to 2005. After that, she served in the State Department's Office of Policy Planning. And before that, she'd been in the Department of Defense. Ryan, before coming to AEI, was in the White House as Special Assistant to President George W. Bush for Domestic Policy from 2005 to 2007. After that, served with Governor Mike Pence in Indiana as Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy. On this podcast, as our listeners know, we talk about constitutional governance in the broadest sense, not just what happens in the court, but how the government itself does the jobs that it's entrusted to do. And obviously, the crisis going on right now as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak has put the government to the test in truly unprecedented ways, not just in terms of the task at hand of combating and stopping the spread of this disease, but also just the task of government coordination, responding to a crisis and organizing a response, roles that put the National Security Council and the Domestic Policy Council in the center of some very challenging duties. So, I'm so grateful to Corey and Ryan for being able to join us so we can talk a little bit about their experience in government and their views on what is happening now. And just so our audience knows, we are taping this on the afternoon of Friday, March 27th, just as the House goes in to vote on the stimulus bill. With that big wind-up, Corey, Ryan, welcome. (laughs) It's a great pleasure, Adam. Thanks. And also joined, as always, by my colleague, Tal Fortgang, who's manning this operation. Tal, how are you? I'm doing great. I am feeling a little overwhelmed here as the only member of this conversation who has not worked in the White House. That's right, Adam. We remember your internship. (laughs) (laughs) My my internship didn't quite call for anything quite like this. Corey, let's start with you. Why don't you talk a little bit about your job in the National Security Council and, and a little bit about the National Security Council in general?
1: Sure. Well, what the NSC staff does The statutory National Security Council is actually the cabinet members who have responsibilities for defense, treasury, foreign policy. The National Security Council staff are the oarsmen on the trireme of state that do the coordination between the government departments and that advance the president's agenda by working with the departments. It's a really fun job and it's the kind of job where the only currency you have is your ability to persuade people to do what you want them to do because they don't have to do what you want. It's a coordinator's function. And so I loved the job because it felt to me like a continuity of my vocation as a school teacher right? You have to shape how people think about a problem to get them to match their resources to your agenda. And in the Bush administration from 2001 to 2005, that was no small feat, not only because of the challenges after September 11th, but also because the various members of the cabinet were in shocking degree non-compliant with what the president was trying to do. And so, it was a real challenge to try and pull people along to cooperation. Well,
0: 9-11, obviously, is, a, is an analogy that's in a lot of people's minds right now in terms of the magnitude of crisis and sort of the surprise with which it struck America. It was just a sense of how the National Security Council swings into action in response to, to a crisis.
1: So, the NSC is staffed by sharpshooters from the different agencies in large part, and from people who are politically connected to the president and support her or his agenda. And so they really do swing into action when there's a problem to be solved. And one of the things that makes working on the NSC staff so much fun is that work migrates to people who can do it who can, who have good ideas, who have the ability to get the departments lined up, who understand the opportunities of the moment or the dangers of the moment and can swing into action to get stuff done. So it's a flat, fluid workspace that rewards initiatives consistent with the problems that need to be solved. I was not on the NSC staff during September 11th. I was hired in the aftermath because in theory, what my expertise is, is in innovation and warfare, understanding how some militaries can adapt quickly to changing technology or circumstances and why others can't. And so I went to the NSC staff with the remit of looking at the American military in the, in the aftermath of the terrorist attack and thinking, are we adapting fast enough? Are we making the right choices? What should we be doing that we're not? Who needs to have a piece of this problem to solve, and what can they bring to the solution of it? And it was intellectually an incredibly demanding problem, but also, you know, the great thing about working on the NSC staff, and I'm sure the same was true for Ryan on the domestic policy staff, is that it really matters to have the right answer to problems because the consequences are so severe for the country if you don't. So, the sense of moral obligation of having things right and not taking trivial approaches is what ennobles that hard work.
0: Well, thanks, Corey. And, and with that, let's bring Ryan into the conversation. Ryan, thanks for being so patient. Same basic questions, Ryan, for, to start with. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work in the White House and the role of the Domestic Policy Council in general? Yeah,
2: thanks. And it's, it's good to be here with you, Adam. The Domestic Policy Council sits within the office of the president, sort of right next to the National Economic Council, the NEC, and there's a lot of overlap in the issues. And so, what my responsibility was as a special assistant to the president was through over a a portfolio of issues under my care, to make sure that the president and his senior advisors were getting the best information, the most comprehensive view of a particular problem with the best expert advice from outside and within the administration. And essentially running those processes you know, every day, running multiple ones where you're essentially trying to identify what the best answer to a problem is, or often in our case was to recommend three or four different answers for the president to listen to his advisors debate about. And so that could be you know, on, on a whole range of things that are big and important, like responding to a crisis like Katrina, which, which I can get in, get into here in a little bit, or the run-up to the housing crisis, which I also lived through, big, big issues, but also smaller issues that aren't actually in the news cycle, not the things that people are actually reading about that much that are still very important to the nation. They're just not things that any journalist is really covering. And those can be, you know, particular regulatory processes in an agency, a rule making its way through a federal agency that that may not seem like a big deal, but would have a really big impact on a large part of the country or the economy. And you have to make sure that the right questions are being asked and that nothing slips through. So in some ways, these jobs are like glorified clerk jobs. I mean, you're basically the one who is writing and maintaining the memo that you're responsible for with all of this input through many meetings before you're prepared to bring something like that into the Oval Office. And so from a process perspective, that's the kind of job that it is. Like Corey, I thought it was a lot of fun. It's certainly stress inducing. You you just get used to the idea that you're going to arrive at the office and be working on things when it's time to go home at night that you didn't even know what you were going to be working on that day. And you all, yeah. and the workflow just never slows down. It's just constant. And so sometimes you, you find yourself coming into the office knowing that you're Going to be working on things when you go home at night that you didn't even realize you were going to be working on the day that you arrived. I mean, it's just it's just constant. The work never never stops. So it's it's fun. It's stress inducing uh, for sure. But we had a, you know a great team of very capable people when when I was working there. And I never saw anybody stab anyone in the back during a time of crisis. I never saw people trying to take credit for things that they shouldn't take credit for. It was a it was a group of people who were really there with the single job of making sure the president was equipped to make decisions.
0: Ryan, you mentioned the Katrina experience, and that again is another analogy that's in a lot of people's minds. Just the well, especially now that the COVID nineteen outbreak seems to be focusing more and more in Louisiana. Could you just give a, a, a few thoughts on that experience, maybe as a template for, or not maybe not a template, but an example of the White House's domestic apparatus grappling with a real crisis?
2: Yeah. In, you know, obviously, Katrina was fixed in a particular location as opposed to what we're seeing now, which is all across the country. But there are some really important kind of similarities. Anthony Fauci said last week that in a pandemic, you're always behind. In many ways, in a crisis like Katrina, the same thing is, is true. The information flow is not coming in fast enough for you to know what's happening on the ground. And so you, you, you find out in a situation like that, one, how certain lines of communication that should be clear and in order simply are not. And that results in sometimes an amazing cost in in human life and and suffering. And then you also realize the limits to any type of scenario planning that went before that, where you you tend to think that some, some of these sorts of things have been gamed out and only to find out that that you really weren't prepared, and so we're seeing that in the current crisis as well. In my case, you know, I remember you remember Katrina happened in August when the president was at his ranch in Crawford, and and anyone who's lived and worked in D.C. knows that the city completely clears out in August. And I made my way down to the staff table in the West Wing mess. It was the first person in that day. It was super quiet because a lot of people were on vacation two of the president's speechwriters came in. We chit-chatted a little bit about our summer vacations with our families. And, and one of us said, hey, did you see that thing on television about that that thing? It's like a dike or something that what water is coming through in New Orleans. And it's like, yeah, it looks bad. I suppose engineers know how to fix that thing. And of course, four or five hours later, it was kind of a five alarm fire in the, in the White House. And from from the start, we were having a hard time getting accurate information on the ground. So we saw things like the you know, direct decisions made by the president after being briefed by the Secretary of Homeland Security being carried out in a in 180 degrees different direction by FEMA on the ground simply because the, the lines of communication were not clear. The decision that was made in the White House was not adequately carried out on the ground. And that affected things like the number of trailers getting sent down there and where they were going and, and, and the like. And also, in the wake of 9-11, I think some of us had just assumed that we had prepared for things like a dirty bomb to go off in a city and what to do with you know 300,000 or 500,000 displaced people and found out that with 500,000 displaced people in New Orleans, we really had, didn't have much of a plan. What to do with that population, we probably made it on day seven on a Saturday afternoon sitting in, in the old executive office building. And so you're always playing catch up. And I think you know we've clearly seen that in the current crisis. And at some point, we'll know when we're caught up. But when you don't have a complete picture of what's happening on ground, it's very hard to make right predictions.
1: I am having such resonance with Ryan's description because it parallels so strongly my own experience of working on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's a real challenge to get accurate information in the timeline that decision makers need the information. And it's an enormous challenge to get the different parts of the American government ditched up together. For me, the biggest thing I took away from my time in the White House was a real rich appreciation that we have a government created by people who distrusted efficient government. (laughs) And so you're just always, always, always trying to make sure who has the information, who needs to know the information, how do I get it to them? And a lot of being good at a job in the White House is being able to answer those questions fast.
0: Now, I want to get to this point about stitching the government together in a moment, but this point you've now both raised about information is very interesting. In your roles or in those roles inside the White House, where is the information coming from?
2: This is a great question. And it's been on full display even in the current crisis in some evident ways this, this past week. One of the challenges in the middle of a crisis when you're trying to govern is, is making sure that you're trying to get information from sources that are not hard, built into your current feedback loops, right? And you often rely on people that are already in your network to supply information. I mean, obviously, you've got information coming in from the front lines. In the Katrina case, it was coming from the people in FEMA who were dispatched, you know, the first people on the ground. They're the ones giving us all kinds of information about how many displaced, which parts of the city are unlivable, and so on, and what the current response is. But in terms of what to do, where you're looking for that information requires a lot of effort to go outside of your comfortable feedback loops. I've seen that, I think, for those of us who were in conversation with members of the administration and on the Hill even the past week and a half as they're, they're preparing this massive relief bill, that was even evident in some of those conversations. You could see that that people are accustomed to seeking out solutions from experts they know and trust both in and out of government and certain narratives get formed. And so, you know, even in the, the current formulation of this bill, it seemed like people were coming around eventually to the idea that we needed to figure out how to keep people employed, not just issue them checks, you know, once they're unemployed, but trying to get to the point where we, we had the right kind of data and information to structure the bill the right way. You're making these decisions about what's going on in the bill before you completely understand what the solution is that's required. And that was that was on on display this week, I think, as as this bill was being debated. Figuring out how to creatively go outside of your own regular feedback loops is is incredibly important in times of crisis and something that we usually don't do a good job of.
0: Corey, I suppose on national security issues, the information sources are slightly different, right?
1: I think I will surprise you to say that although the sources are different, the tradecraft is exactly the same as Ryan described. And so one of the reasons I was hired on the NSC staff was because I had been a daughter of the regiment in the joint staff during then General Powell's time. And so I had grown up with a lot of the people who were then military commanders. So I could call people on the telephone and ask, here's what we think is happening. Is this what's actually happening? What are you seeing that we're not seeing? And foreign embassies, who very often have less tangled and quicker reacting Bureaucratic information systems than we do, you know, the Canadians very often knew stuff before we did. And so making sure that that you have the kinds of relationships, not just that you know who to call, but people who will call you and say, hey, this is actually important or who will forward you the information when they have it without you having to be the instigator of it. Because as Ryan rightly pointed out, the speed at which decisions need to be made and action needs to be taken. In a crisis, you always feel like you're catching up.
0: Now, as you do that, you're working in both directions, right? Things are coming up through you, whether it's inform- it's information, I suppose, primarily on its way up to decision makers above you, and then the decision makers decide, and then the decision probably flows in part through you, although not exclusively. So, let's talk about that Agency coordination side of things, or as Corey put it, knitting <laughs> knitting together the government, which is the right way of putting it. You know, if in, in, you could in,
1: see me. I'm getting like a psychosomatic eye twitch right now <laughs> from the pain of doing the interagency coordination for the Iraq <laughs> War.
0: Yeah, well, you, what it wasn't simple back then. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in theory, in theory right, like a constitutional lawyer like me can say, well, this is simple. The president's in charge of everything, and he just decides what to do. And then the agencies will, you know, the cabinet secretaries will follow through and push on through there. But I suppose it doesn't quite work that way in practice.
1: Let me give you a horrible snapshot. <laughs> this would have been the summer of 2003 when the insurgency was already raging in Iraq. And the U.S. had recruited a coalition of 50-some countries with wildly varying risk tolerance for casualties and for degree of difficulty of missions. The Lithuanians volunteered to do nighttime patrols in South Baghdad, which was some of the most dangerous terrain in Iraq. And all they wanted from us was night vision goggles so they could actually see what was happening. The Defense Department refused to provide those, saying they were in short enough supply for American soldiers. And so requirement number one was beating the Defense Department into submission so that they would help us give an ally willing to share the burden of some of the most dangerous work, the ability to do so effectively. And then OMB refused to provide any funding for it, because it turned out that legislatively Lithuania was still part of the Warsaw Pact, which had ceased to exist in what, 1990, 1991? The funding legislation had not passed through Congress that acknowledged Lithuania as a NATO member and therefore preferred ally who could receive high tech American military gear. And what we eventually had to do was have somebody go see John McCain up on Capitol Hill and get him to agree that we could violate the law and do what was right to do in this instance.
0: How did John McCain have that ability to do that?
1: To promise that if the administration violated the law, Congress was not going to penalize us for doing that, but that instead he would make sure that he persuaded his fellow members of the Armed Services Committee to agree that the administration was doing the right thing for the war effort, even if for reasons that had nothing to do with the administration at all it turned out not to be legal to do that.
0: Yeah. So this is another way in which, again, from a, just a lawyer's perspective, the practice is a little more complicated than the theory. It's not just all sort of siloed off within the executive branch. There is this interaction, even informal interaction with Congress or at least with the Senate that makes a big difference. Absolutely. Ryan, how does the domestic policy side of things work with this agency coordination? Challenge. Yeah.
2: Let me, let me give you a, a little bit of a different example because what Corey is talking about and what I was talking about with regard to Katrina are trying to get agencies to coordinate with each other in the middle of a crisis when you all know you're in the middle of a crisis. There's another scenario which is, happens a lot as well, which is where you think a crisis is on the horizon and you're trying to understand what's coming at you. That's sometimes a really challenging environment in getting interagency coordination because people don't actually agree on what's happening, right? we saw that in the early days of this crisis and now we're in a kind of a different place. And I can just give you a story about that. I remember before we had a housing crisis, and you remember before the financial collapse of 2008, that was predicated by problems in the housing market, which started to show signs you know, in, in late 2005, 2006, that we had a lot of unsold homes on the market, sitting on the market for longer. I had some economists come into my office with some data on how many lower middle-income minority families in America were financing their homes with these risky subprime mortgages and what they thought the exposure would be if those people ended up not being able to meet their, their obligations. And, and we decided to pull together an internal working group on this to try to study what was happening in the mortgage markets. And in this particular case, you started to see different agency cultures, you know, whether it was the economists from Treasury versus the economists from the Department of Housing and Urban Development from, and from the, the Council of Economic Advisors, having very different takes on what the exposure was. And so, trying to come to an agreement on whether or not there was a, a crisis on the horizon or not was was really challenging to do. And then you also have this problem of not being able to sort of directly request data from regulators, right? And so, when I was trying to figure out exactly what was going on, I couldn't even reach out to one of the twelve or so different banking regulators to ask for information on lenders. I had to go through the Treasury Department to do that, and which was staffed mostly by people who were not as concerned about the crisis as some of, of, of the others. And so we worked for probably six months trying to understand what was going on. And during that time, I was seeking out kind of analysts that I was finding online who, were, who had purchased some of this data from regulators and were doing their own analysis of, of mortgage markets and what they thought the exposure would, would be. And I remember calling one guy who I would describe as sort of a chicken little, he was really worried that this guy was falling. And when I brought his analysis back into the White House, it was met, I would say mostly with some skepticism you know he seemed like the outlier he turned out to be be right but all of our efforts led to a, a reform piece of legislation to make it easier for people to refinance their mortgages with the federal housing administration as a as a backstop and it it passed the house it failed in the senate and then sat there on desks for another few months before the crisis really took off and then served as a template for the for the response but we had all the way up until we even sent worked on that package with people on the Hill, we had some strong dissenters in inside the White House itself. We had people that were were not in agreement with, with what we eventually got sign off from the president to do. This is a really when you're trying to figure out exactly the size and scope of a problem coming to you, because people have these these feedback loops of their own they bring those to the table and that becomes a part of the, the narrative. And sometimes mitigating all of that becomes very difficult to do. It's before things get really bad. And then once things are bad, then everyone knows we have a crisis. But up until you know you have a crisis, sometimes those different agency cultures and narratives really prohibit you from being able to take the kind of action that you should.
0: Now, everything we've talked about so far has been focused on the federal government. But of course, the states and local governments often have a role to play in crisis. And the current crisis, they, they truly are the front lines. And there's ongoing dialogue back and forth between governors and the White House, governors and federal government experts. Ryan, how do you sort of bring non-federal parts of government into this national policymaking apparatus? Is it all, is it sort of informal and it just it sort of arises organically in the moment of the crisis? Or is there sort of a standard way of doing these things?
2: I don't think there's a really standard way of doing these things. They they happen in accordance with the nature of whatever crisis we're dealing with. And so in a crisis like Katrina, the governors of Mississippi and Louisiana were directly involved at the outset. And you really began to see the difference even in their own state cultures and in the cultures of those particular offices. I think there was a reason why Mississippi's response was, was swifter and better coordinated and why in Louisiana, you didn't see that kind because they're there was a lot of fighting between the state and the mayor's office of New Orleans as well that really, the public narrative was that this federal government is screwing everything up. But for those of us who are working on it day to day, we saw that this inability to share information at the state and local level was creating huge problems that we ourselves could not fly in and take care of, whereas Mississippi had assembled a kind of a rapid response infrastructure, which enabled them to take federal resources and get them to where, where they needed to be. In the current crisis, it seems like they're having regular conference calls with governors, which is important and necessary because that's going to be the best source that they have of what life is really like on the ground right now. You can't really trust the media to be giving you an accurate response. You need to, you need to be hearing from the public health officials at the state and, and local level. And so, I don't know how frequently they're doing those in this current crisis. If I were there, I think we'd be doing them every day.
0: Now, we'll get back to the current crisis a little bit more at the end, but I just have two final questions for you both just in general aspects of these things. We've talked about domestic policy, we've talked about national security policy. Often a crisis brings these together and that's what we have here at least with the crisis with COVID-19 beginning overseas, being sort of a foreign policy, national security issue and now thoroughly a domestic policy issue. I'm sure it's hard enough coordinating just domestic policy agencies on an issue or just, say, the State Department of the Pentagon on issues. When you bring all of this together, is this just a case of, well, it's more agencies and it's more complicated? Or does the fact that it's these agencies that often don't work together, having to work together, does that actually further complicate things more than usual?
2: I think it definitely complicates things more than usual when you have agencies that are not accustomed to working with each other. And Corey's probably had many more dramatic experiences of that than, than, than I did. But certainly that was the case in, in what I was just talking about. And in the response to Katrina, the USDA and the Department of Health and Human Services are very different from FEMA and having them coordinate resources to get there on the ground was was, was incredibly difficult because they're also operating under different statutory authorities, sometimes where you have timelines that don't match up in terms of the kind of assistance you can provide someone and who makes that decision on whether or not we should go back to Congress and ask for a a change to the law. These are things that you find out while they're happening simply because you've actually never stood up a task force that consists of the people from those relevant agencies before.
0: Yeah. Corey? (laughs)
1: My experience mirrors Ryan's that, you know, every basketball team plays better together if they've played together before. And that holds true for policy coordination, too. And the personal relationships and personal trust matter hugely because mm-hmm. you're judging whether you can give people the benefit of the doubt that their information is accurate, that they're able to deliver their boss on stuff that people agree on, that they can get their institution moving fast enough. And they're even, I mean, in the national security space, even as much as the different agencies routinely work together, the fingerprints of institutional culture make such a difference. The State Department culturally loves itself in description of a problem in the reporting function. And the Defense Department institutionally loves itself in action. And so getting the State Department out of a descriptive and into a, okay, tell me what the three things we're going to do today and why we need to do them today. Whereas the Defense Department will jump to that before because they love themselves in action. And so they may not know what needs doing, but they will get started doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of times, as Rosa Brooks very nicely points out in her book, how everything became war and the military became everything, that there is a very strong tendency on the parts of the American government outside the Defense Department to believe that the American military sits around doing nothing and should be thrown at every single problem. And that gets really tiresome fast, having to explain to people that National Guard forces actually work for a governor, and many of them are nurses and sheriffs. And so if you nationalize, if you bring into federal control the National Guard, you're actually going to strip frontline forces in the current instance, from people who are first responders to the COVID-19 crisis.
0: That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. And now I'm thinking back to things like not just bringing in the Army Corps of Engineers or or the Army on things, but just recent calls to bring in the defense logistics, the DLA, the Defense Logistics Administration Authority Agency, agency, and having them try to run logistics for domestic operations of just getting things to where they're needed right now. When I first saw that proposal, I thought, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But I suppose I sort of forgot they they already have a day job.
1: They do have a day job, but the logistics stuff is the easy place to divert the American military because that organization and logistics are what the American military is actually brilliant at. And so if you need to figure out what's the most efficient way to make sure we can get, I don't know, masks to the hospitals that need it most, a sergeant and a major are going to be able to tell you how to do that faster than anybody else in the country. Does that mean they should be the people? I mean, one of the challenges is that when you rely on the military to do stuff, you don't develop the civilian capacity to do it. And in most instances, civilian capacity is preferable for everything that has to do with American society.
0: I guess it'll have to be Amazon then. So, <laughs> yeah. so w- w- one last big picture question, and we've seen a lot of this in the current crisis. The president's advisors in the White House, they have both an inside role and an outside role, right? They are advising the president and we count on them to give the president the best and bluntest possible advice. At the same time, they're often called to speak out to the public and advise the public. And we've seen, I mean, really, especially with the case of Dr. Fauci, the way he's pulled in two directions, right, to be part of the president's team, but then from the outside, you know, calls to sort of amplify or 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 highlight differences of opinion between him and the president. And his two roles sort of get put in, in odds with one another, his role in advising the president, and his role in advising the public. In your experience, how do your parts of the White House sort of thread that needle of both being core presidential advisors and supporters while at the same time being called upon to interface with the public.
1: You first, Ryan. Okay.
2: <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's always a challenge. And I think the issue sometimes is actually complicated by this problem that we talked about where you're always kind of behind where reality is. And so as you start to learn more about what's actually really going on, your message has to has to adapt. And I know in our in our particular case, I mean we went from trying to figure out what was going on in the ground and trying to get coordination together where it just wasn't happening. I mean, just one quick story. You, you may remember the Carnival cruise ships that came into house people off the coast of, of New Orleans. First guy on the ground for FEMA was the one who organized that. And he called me in my office at the White House and said, Hey, I understand you, you oversee housing policy. I need authorization to pay for a Carnival cruise ship that I've got sailing to New Orleans right now to provide housing for people. And I, and I said, well, I, I can't make operational <laughs> decisions like that here. And I said, I'm, I'm a policy guy, not a public affairs guy, but are we sure that's even a good idea <laughs> you know, to, to house people on a Carnival cruise ship? And he shot back, look, you don't understand how serious things are. We've got to find a way to get first responders and other people you know, a place to stay. And the problem was, he said he couldn't get the secretary's office, the right people on the phone back there. And he was the first person on the ground. So even within the context of DHS, which we created after 9-11, and FEMA, which had been a, a cabinet-level agency, was now a part of that, wasn't they, they themselves were not a fully functioning bureaucracy at the time. We discovered that through, through things like this happening. We went from that kind of mayhem to within a week, the president wanting to give a public address in New Orleans where we laid out what the government was going to do. And we were doing policy development and just rapid formation, trying within a week's time to put together a massive package, bring relief to families, reconstruction, all these things that that he wanted to talk about, and which was in some ways aspirational in the sense that we wanted to show New Orleans that we were there, that, that we were flipping into action and gonna provide those resources. and. He gave the speech and probably within a week, I think we realized that the the problem just was bigger than even the original response that we had. And and from that time on, you noticed the public messaging about Katrina became very much about what we were doing to just mitigate the effects of this horrible disaster and give people what they, they needed to live wherever they were going to be living. But in terms of kind of a massive comprehensive plan. We realized within a few days after that, it wasn't going to work out the way we had had formulated it. And just, I think the decision was made to just be honest about it and just be honest about what we're doing. And and the president said, you know, I'm from Texas, I know a brush fire when I see one. And I think he realized at that point that we were, we were kind of losing the, the narrative here, that we weren't ever going to be able to provide a response that, that was going to be super satisfactory. And rather, we needed to, to stop the pain as much as possible, which is a very difficult thing to have to talk about. But I, I feel like that's what you see some of the, the public health professionals doing in these White House briefings right now is to try to to clarify and put people's perspective where it should be, which is always a really challenging thing to do. You want you want to give people hope, but you can't do that when you don't have the, the means to do so.
0: Corey, any thoughts on this inside, outside yeah. role?
1: Yeah, it was an agony in the Bush administration, watching the president both try and reassure the American public in the aftermath of September 11th, and then in particular, once the Iraq War had been launched. During the six months of time when the president was satisfying himself that our strategy would never be successful and we needed to take a different approach, either to write off Iraq or to surge troops and try a different approach that was more woven into Iraqi society, everybody in the administration felt pulled between the internal analytic challenge of what is the nature of the problem and what are the best approaches to it, and the external nature of the challenge of not discouraging the American and allied forces fighting the war, not to encourage our adversaries while we were thinking our way through a very difficult problem. And I think everybody struggled with it. Because it wasn't, do I support the president or not? It's how much of what we are considering and agonizing over is it useful to have a public conversation about? We know we're eventually going to need to do that. We know we're eventually going to need to persuade the American public and its representatives that we know what we're doing, but choosing when to have that conversation and who should lead that conversation made a really big difference. And one example I have heard Steve Hadley use is the difference is that in the run-up to the Iraq War, when the president had congressional consultations about the decisions he was making, he would defer to the National Security Advisor, Condoleezza Rice, to explain the strategy. And during the Iraq surge in 2006, the president himself explained what was going on to members of Congress. And I think that gives a sense of how much it matters to have the president himself be the messenger for the hard things that need to be done. As staffers in an administration, helping get to that point as fast as practicable is the best way to handle that problem.
0: You know, as, as you were walking through that, It occurred to me that among the other sort of challenges you have to grapple with, and Ryan alluded to this earlier on the question about going back and getting more statutory authority if necessary, is oftentimes crises like this are going to push the bounds of statutory authority, what anybody could have anticipated when they wrote the statute, or, you know, various norms or traditions of an agency, you know, best practices and so on, they're all kind of put to the test. And I suppose the White House and the agencies themselves have to figure out how hard to push those things and where to draw lines.
1: I have a great contemporary example of it. The 1873 Posse Comitatus Act precludes the American military from supplanting civilian organizations within the territory of the United States. And it seems to me likely if the pandemic should go on for several more months and people continue to be infected at high rates, that we may need to actually have the American military, I don't know, delivering mail or helping restock grocery stores, in part because they are Available and easily mobilizable labor force, and also because they're young and strong. And that will require either the president making a determination that he has the authority, because of the emergency, to supersede the Posse Comitatus Act which is reverenced in civil military circles in the United States and is a big reason that the American public actually likes its military, Mm -hmm. because they don't get used for domestic purposes other than humanitarian relief after a hurricane. Or the Congress is going to have to amend the legislation, which is going to raise all sorts of longer-term concerns. So that's an example of exactly what you're talking about, Adam. Yeah
0: looking at the current crisis the covid-19 outbreak obviously we're all watching these hockey stick graphs of, of infections and deaths going up and we're all focused on the just the basic epidemiological reports but from your perspectives as veterans of these parts of government as you watch this response being carried out what are you keeping an eye on what is most of most interest to you either in terms of what's happened already or what you're looking out for on the horizon as the as the government response continues
2: I think I'm looking for, aside from the public health side of things, to see how quickly this assistance to businesses can get set up. That's that once we get this this bill enacted, you know, we're obviously seeing with the latest unemployment numbers, the the insurance claims are, you know, this is unprecedented, and it's a it's a red warning light, and this is going to keep happening if businesses are having to shutter or think they're going to, and so how quickly these types of loan instruments can be made available is, is one thing I'm gonna be keeping my eye on because it's gonna be a real signal about how the economic effects of this are gonna play out. And I think on the, the public health side of, of things right now, I'm, I'm most hopeful just, you know, for what our scientists are doing in laboratories, things we don't even fully know about or understand right now, to try to provide us something that can fight back against this virus until we wait, wait for a vaccine. And so, I try to keep up with that, with that as much as I can because there is still a lot about this virus we don't fully get. And so I'm, I'm mostly interested in that because I think once we start to see some things go through trials and be available, it's going to create all kinds of confidence back in the overall economy. So that's, that's probably the thing I'm, I'm most interested and most concerned about.
1: So I was reminded by our colleague Fred Kagan yesterday that none of the wars going on in the world are halting for this pandemic. So, the brutality of the Syrian government and its Russian and Iranian enablers continues at pace. War between Turkey and Russia in Syria is going on. And the slow, grinding humanitarian catastrophe of the civil war in Yemen continues to go on. North Korea continues to test its missiles. And so, even though we are focused inward, and hopefully also increasingly holding hands with other societies and working through international institutions to address this global pandemic. We also have to keep a weather eye, as the sailors say, towards the way our adversaries can take advantage of these opportunities, going back to the discussion we were having earlier about the American military still having a full-time job.
0: You know, we often have the Absolutely. saying, never let a good crisis go to waste. I guess I sort of forgot that Kim Jong-un and others know that as well. Awesome. Um, yeah. Well, on that on exactly. that rather bleak note, I do wanna thank both of our <laughs> guests, Ryan Streeter, AEI's Director of Domestic Policy Studies, Corey Shockey, AEI's Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies. You can find their work on the AEI website along with the reports by our colleagues, Scott Gottlieb, and others who are writing and speaking daily on these issues. Thanks to both of our guests for joining us. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Please join us again next time our dogs are barking. Please join us again next time for another episode of Unprecedential.